Well, I'd like to begin this morning by addressing the children. Uh, children, if you're in here, if you're 12 years old or younger, would you please raise your hand? Oh, thank you. Oh, wow, there are more than I thought. Uh, thank you for raising your hands. I'm so glad to see you here this morning. I'm so glad your parents brought you here. And uh, I'll make you a deal. This morning, I'm going to try uh, my best to preach a shorter sermon so that you don't have to sit in one place for as long. Does that sound good? Okay, that's what… Uh, well, I'll, I'll attempt it. We'll see how successful I am. Um, and, and I do want to address you, children. One of the things I want to talk about today is uh, that it, when I'm up here, if, if you're a child and you've had to come, up, uh, come to church and you listen to my sermons, uh, one of the things I regularly talk about is the good news of the gospel, that even though… Uh, we break God's law, and we do bad things, and we disobey God, that we can still be forgiven uh, because God's Son, Jesus, came and died on the cross in our place to take the penalty that we deserve. And so, I talk about that a lot from up here, and I'm aware that a lot of my sermons, because I'm talking a lot about that, I necessarily am talking about how we are sinners. We do evil things. We break God's law. We do bad things. And so, I have a lot… It's, usually, there's a lot of bad news coming from this pulpit about what rotten sinners we are. But the Bible doesn't just portray mankind as sinners. The Bible also acknowledges that we are sufferers. Uh, people sin against us. We get hurt. We cry. We face disappointment. Um, we face hardship, we get diseases. And the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus came to save sinners, but also that He came to help all who suffer. And that's what I want to talk about today from Isaiah 61. So, uh, turn in your Bible to Isaiah 61. We're back in our Isaiah series today, and uh, we're at the very end of it. I anticipate uh, three more sermons if you count this one. And we're in the final section of Isaiah, which is Isaiah chapters 58 through 66. And we're just going to take a detailed look at a couple paragraphs within that section that I think are very important. In fact, today we're in Isaiah 61. When I was preparing the Isaiah series and I was reading through Isaiah over and over to prepare, when I came to Isaiah 61, I knew I'm obligated to preach this passage. I must preach this passage, but I'm not going to tell you why yet. You have to try it. See if you can figure out why before I get there, okay? You got… I think you have like 10 minutes if I, if I move quickly, and if you use the marginal notes in your Bible to cheat and look at cross-references for Isaiah 61, you might be able to figure it out. But I felt obligated to preach on this. Uh, and you'll see why in a moment. And, and I will uh, uh, let you know ahead of time, this is good news for the afflicted today. This is the good news that Jesus brings. We're not so much looking at needing to be saved from our sins this morning, but the help that Jesus gives us when we suffer. And I do come to this passage having had a, a number of weeks of counseling sessions trying to help people who are suffering greatly. And I come with these psalms on my heart, Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and to those who are crushed in spirit. Uh, Psalm 68, bless the Lord who daily bears our burdens, the God who is our salvation. The psalmist confesses in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, 
but now I keep my way according to your word. The fact is that the Messiah Isaiah prophesies uh, didn't just come to render himself as a guilt offering for our sins. He also came to bring good news to the afflicted and to comfort those who mourn. And we're going to look at that this morning from Isaiah 61. Follow along with me while I read Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the arboretum of the Lord, that He may be glorified. When we come to this paragraph, if you will, of Scripture, the speaker isn't identified. We don't, we don't know who the speaker is when we come to it. And, and if you look at the verses that follow, uh, they, they don't make it obvious who this person is. So, you have to look at the internal evidence for who could be speaking here. Because Isaiah doesn't identify himself as speaking. We know that this speaker is different than the Lord, different than Yahweh, so this isn't Yahweh speaking. He's also someone who's different than those who grieve in Zion, so he can't be one of those people. He possesses the divine spirit, capital S. He is God's spokesman to bring the good news to the afflicted. And so I believe that all of the internal evidence points to him being the Emmanuel that Isaiah has prophesied earlier, the chosen servant the Lord will send into the world, uh, uh, who is later in the Old Testament identified as Messiah. This is Messiah speaking. And what this means is that even before he came, he was speaking into the world, telling the world ahead of time what he would accomplish when he came. He will come and use his power to save people, but not just from their sin. He'll also uh, uh, save and help those who are afflicted and those who grieve. He will use his power to enable them to live righteous lives. And the result of all this work that he does will result in the Lord being praised and uh, receiving exaltation. So, that's where we're going this morning. Let's look first at how Messiah will use His power to save the afflicted. Look again at verse 1 for a moment. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. So, Messiah, speaking for Himself, says that He comes with the divine Spirit of Yahweh upon Him because Yahweh has anointed Him to accomplish a mission, and He sums up His mission with these words, to bring good news to the afflicted. Now, that Hebrew word afflicted is used in the Old Testament for people who are in any and every kind of trouble. You can find it used for people who were poor. They were living hand to mouth. They barely had enough to get by, and so they were in a weak position financially. They didn't have anything, and they were barely making it. It could also be used in the Old Testament to speak of those who were in a weak position in the sense that they didn't have enough means or power or good health or connections to protect themselves from the rich and powerful who wanted to oppress them. They didn't have a lot of options in society, and so uh, it's used for people in that kind of trouble. But this word for affliction is also used for those who feel an inner sense of affliction 
over their conviction of sin and their sense of guilt and shame in breaking God's law. And so, this includes people who are in trouble because evil is coming at them from outside of them, but it also includes people who are in trouble because of the evil that wells up within them, and they see it for what it is and need help. And so, Messiah's mission is to bring good news and deliverance to all people who are afflicted and in trouble for any reason. Now, think about this, what this means, and and this is where we have the advantage as we study Isaiah. One of the blessings about studying Isaiah in our own day is that Messiah's already come once, and we can read about His work in the Gospels. So, think about what Jesus of Nazareth did when He came. When He came, who did He proclaim the good news to? It wasn't to the people who were comfortable and rich and full of their own virtue in Israel. That's not who he came to. He went to the poor, to the afflicted, to those who had diseases of various kinds, the demon-possessed. That's who he went and proclaimed good news to. He proclaimed good news over all that was enslaving people. Now, in the Hebrew grammar, the sentence structure of what's going on here, you're going to see other things Messiah says He's going to do. For example, He says He's also going to proclaim uh, liberty to captives. And there's seven statements that follow the idea of preaching good news to the afflicted. And, and here's what you need to understand. It's not that Messiah is saying ahead of time, here's my mission, and here are eight bullet points for what I'm going to do. That's not it. He's saying, I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring good news to the afflicted, and just to make sure that you understand what I mean by good news to the afflicted, here are seven bullet points that help you understand all that that means. And the first one comes next. It says, to proclaim liberty to captives. Um, uh, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. After proclaiming good news to the afflicted, uh, he says, He has sent me, the Lord has sent me, to bandage up or bind up the brokenhearted. So, what he's doing here is he's coming to the brokenhearted. These are people who are so brokenhearted, uh, who are grieving. This is a word that's used a lot in the Old Testament for people who are uh, grieving over the loss of a loved one. Uh, These are people who are so brokenhearted by life that they have no more heart to keep trying. This is for… These are the kind of people who they're not going to do the wrong thing and uh, take matters into their own hands and commit like suicide, do themselves in. But if the Lord were to, to take them in death tomorrow, they wouldn't mind. In fact, they'd, perf- they'd prefer it. They would like it if He would just do that so that they don't have to face the next day. That's this group. And He's going to come and bind up and bandage up those who are brokenhearted. He will also proclaim liberty to captives. That is to say, He will bring liberty to people who are so trapped in their addictions that the announcement of liberty seems like some kind of cruel mirage. Now, As I preach this, and I'm interpreting here, I want to confess something here. If you look up, if you do a Bible word search, and you look up the word addicted, you're probably not going to find it in a Bible word search in most of our translations. Our translators don't tend to translate that way. And so, there's a disconnect sometimes when our world and our culture talks about addictions, and then when we're reading the Bible for answers to life. But the Bible actually does talk about the idea of addictions. Here are the words you need to look for. In the Old Testament, words are used like ensnared and entrapped and enslaved 
to speak about things that we would consider to be addictions. Uh, uh, These words are used of substances like alcohol. They're used of internal desires that that people feel trapped by. Uh, They're also used for uh, particular sins that are especially habit-forming, like sexual sin. And if you start looking through Scripture with that in mind, what you'll find is that the idea of addiction is in the Bible, but you need to look for words like entrapped, ensnared, entangled, uh, enslaved. Uh, in the Bible, people are addicted to substances like alcohol. Uh, we typically call it drunkenness, not alcoholism, but, but it's in there. It's the same idea. People are addicted to particularly habit-forming sins, like habit-forming sexual sins, and you see the feeling of being trapped in that where I know I shouldn't do it, I know it's not the right thing, but I know tomorrow I'm probably just going to indulge in it again. You can find that in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22. It's one of the particular uh, consequences of sexual sin. You can find it also in the New Testament. Paul writes to Titus, reminding him uh, when he's speaking about the unbelievers, the the non-Christians that they are trying to reach with the gospel, he reminds Titus, we also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient to God, deceived by sin, and enslaved, I think you could translate it addicted, to various desires and pleasures. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, Uh, in the form of Messiah, He saved us by His mercy. So, even there, the idea of addiction uh, is in the Bible, and it's part of the mission of Messiah to save people who are addicted to substances and certain pleasures and habit-forming sins uh, and other troubles. His mission also includes proclaiming liberty and freedom to prisoners. The idea here is people who think they will never again experience the favor of the Lord. Maybe you could think of it this way. A captive is someone who is captured and maybe taken away, enslaved and taken to another country against their will. A prisoner in the Old Testament is usually someone who's ran afoul of uh, the, the civil law, and they're kind of in prison Uh, partially uh, 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 for reasons of their own doing. And so, this is the person who thinks they'll never again experience the favor of the Lord because of the things they've done. This is for people who are depressed. This is for people who are in uh, the darkness of a dungeon and haven't seen the light of day. Now, all of these are big promises for Messiah to make. For Messiah to make these promises He's going to have to be powerful, right? He's going to have to be a king who's more powerful than the things that afflict us and hold us captive. He's going to have to be powerful enough to defeat death for the brokenhearted. He's going to have to be powerful enough uh, to defeat Satan uh, who lies to us and deceives us and entraps us. He's going to have to be powerful enough to defeat the rich and powerful who afflict those who are weak. He's going to have to be powerful enough to free us from our addictions. And so, if you get to this point in the verse and you're thinking, you know, we don't know who's speaking. Maybe it's Isaiah or one of the prophets, or maybe it's some human king God will send Judah. Think again, because none of those people have the power to pull this off. This can only be Messiah. And consider verse 2, what else he says he'll do. Uh, He will, verse 2, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, the end of that verse, to comfort all who mourn, that's the main point of the verse, that He will comfort 
all who mourn. And He's going to do that in two ways, in two very specific ways He'll comfort those who mourn. First of all, He'll proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This is a promise to all who mourn over their sin. Uh, It's common for those who feel a deep experience of conviction to feel like they've committed the unpardonable sin. You know, where you look at God's law and you're like, I agree with God's law. He's good. His law is good. I should keep it, but I haven't. Uh, How could He ever forgive me uh, for that sin I committed when I was younger or this other thing I did? It was just pure evil that I did. I don't see how He could ever forgive me. If He's good, He has to punish me. And there can be this sense of like conviction that you feel like you can't be forgiven for what you've done. Um, And what the favorable year of the Lord announces to that person is that God will accept you in spite of your sin because of the death of His Son. And so, the favorable year of the Lord deals with our conviction and our guilt and our shame over our sin. But second, there is comfort for all who are oppressed and who are victims of abuse and oppression because the day of vengeance of our God is coming. A day is coming when the rich and powerful and deceitful will be held accountable for their sin. And when you see what God will do to them, I think it will satisfy your inner sense of justice, but I think it will also be terrifying and make all of us thankful for God's mercy. Now, this is very important. The reason I am preaching this passage today, I felt obligated, is because Jesus preached this very paragraph of Scripture from Isaiah when He taught in the synagogues, Um, and Luke records that. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it quickly. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, He actually read this section of Isaiah from the Torah scroll, or the Torah scroll, from the Isaiah scroll, and He applied it to His audience. And so, it would be like spiritual malpractice for me not to see what Jesus says about these verses, right? So, that's why I knew I had to preach it. Uh, Again, this is at the beginning of His public ministry, and this is what Luke records. Uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is after He had been baptized and the Holy Spirit had come upon Him. Uh, uh, And news about Him spread through all the surrounding district, and He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. This is before he started saying things they didn't like. He was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. They would sit down to teach, unlike your pastors in the Christian church, we typically stand up. But he he gave the book back, and he sat down to teach, and the eyes of the whole synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the one who spoke those words ahead of time. I am the one the Lord has sent to proclaim good news to the afflicted and the favorable year of the Lord. But here's the question. When you read what Jesus said and how He applied Isaiah 61, 
He stops in the middle of the thought in Isaiah 61. He spoke these words ahead of time, 700-some years beforehand. He spoke these words through Isaiah, and it's almost like he interrupts himself in the middle of his own paragraph to quit reading and then explain it to the people. Why does he stop at the favorable year of the Lord and not talk about the day of vengeance of our God? Well, Luke doesn't answer that question, but John answers it over in his gospel account. Um, In John chapter 3, you have this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and at one point in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says this, "'For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life.'" For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So, God sent His Son into the world the first time in order to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the offer of salvation to all who mourn for sin. The day of God's vengeance is coming later. That's coming later. And Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, He says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment uh, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection uh, excuse me, to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So, the day of vengeance is coming. The issue is it's coming later. And this is, again, one of those sections in the Old Testament where you have an announcement of what Messiah will do, but the favorable year of the Lord that is at His first coming and the vengeance of God at His second coming is just all scrunched together. And there's no chronological markers to give us any idea that He would come once to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and thousands of years might pass, and then the day of vengeance might come. We've seen that as a theme with the prophets, but even Messiah Himself announcing His own ministry ahead of time uh, does the same thing. And the main point I don't want you to lose sight of in verse 2 is that the main point of verse 2 is that Messiah will come to comfort those who mourn. But that's not all. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, we read, "...to grant to those who mourn in Zion, uh, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of fainting." These words continue to flesh out what His uh, mission will accomplish. But now, instead of telling you uh, what He'll do, He gives you a picture, and the picture is of a transformation. The picture is of someone who's mourning in sackcloth with ashes on their head. They're brokenhearted. Their spirit is crushed. They're in despair. They think there's no hope. And then they're transformed into a happy party-goer with a beautiful headdress and a, and a colorful gar- festal garment for a party. The, the scent of costly oil, uh, perfume or cologne, if you will, is on them. And they're, they're a, a, a joyful, happy party-goer. That's the trans- 
formation, Messiah will bring about for those who mourn. So, He's going to use His power not only to save people from their sin, but also to save them from their troubles and all that grieve them. And He will also use His power to enable His people to live righteous lives. That's the middle of verse 3. Look at the middle of verse 3. He says, uh, so they will be called oaks of righteousness. Now, being an oak of righteousness, some of my friends and I took this up, I think it was my sophomore year of college. We fell in love with this idea. That, here's the thing, though. Being an oak of righteousness sounds nice, but what does it mean? Like, what's going on there? Well, uh, in Hebrew, the word for… So, so, in English, we use oak for like a genus of tree. There's not just like one species of oak. There's like, there's hundreds of species of oak trees, uh, red oaks and white oaks and different kinds of oak trees. In, in Hebrew, what they were using it for, they weren't so much talking about a kind of tree, they just meant big trees, big, hefty uh, trees. I think you could legitimately translate the idea for an American audience as redwoods, redwoods of righteousness, you know, hardwood, sturdy tree. Uh, but again, having established that, what does that mean to be a redwood of righteousness? Uh, well, you have to go all the way back, I think, to Isaiah 1 to understand what's going on here. Back in Isaiah 1, there was a word play on God making people into oaks. And what was going on back in chapter 1 is God is giving an indictment on Judah because of their sin. And one of the things He says to them is, on all these high hills where you could find a hill that had an oak, a, a big sturdy oak tree on it, you've done things, you know, carving that oak tree and such to make it a place of idolatrous worship. And so, in a bitter twist of irony, what I'm going to do, because you did that to the oak trees, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you like an oak tree, but you're going to be like an oak tree that doesn't have enough water, and it, it starts to wither, and its leaves start to wither, and your idolatry and your self-exaltation, I'm going to make into a fire that will consume you the same way that a dry tree is consumed in a fire. But any of you who are willing to confess your sin for what it is and turn back to me, I'll make you into an oak that's… it's like… Uh, I'll make you an oak that's been planted by a stream of water that continually has water and its leaf never withers. That's what I'll do if you're willing to turn back to me. So, he's already used this idea of an oak tree, uh, and here it, the idea is an oak of righteousness. So, then the picture is this. The picture is of God giving a divine enablement to live a righteous life that I think is communicating a remarkable stability. Think about it this way. Maybe, maybe we could do it this way. Uh, let's ask the question, uh, what happens when Messiah transforms people for righteousness, what happens when He transforms angry people into peacemakers, and greedy people into generous people, and demanding people into servants who, who notice others and care for others around them? What happens when He takes people who are lustful people and makes them pure, and faithless people and makes them believers, and proud people and makes them humble, and turns rebels into obedient people, and idolaters into the one, people who worship the one true God? What happens when that transformation takes place in a person? Well, there are two things that happen. Number one, they live lives of remarkable stability. And I think that's one of the ideas that the metaphor of a redwood 
is pushing it. Right? You think about it. You fly out to Northern California and push on a redwood. You know, let's see if you move it anywhere. That thing isn't going anywhere. It's storms, wind, howling, and they're fine. It, even though they're really tall, they're fine. Uh, because it's hard, sturdy, sturdy wood. It, it's a picture of stability. When you choose to live God's way, it produces a remark- remarkable stability. But there's a second consequence, and that second consequence is it brings glory to God. Look at the end of verse 3. Uh, so they will be called... Uh, Redwoods of righteousness, the arboretum of the Lord, that He may be glorified. The picture, I'm, I'm using the idea of arboretum. It's like, uh, it, it's like an arboretum of cultivated trees that the Lord, who are hit God's trees, His people, His arboretum, and it brings Him glory. And notice that the people here at the end, they're both happy and holy. They're holy in the sense they live righteous lives. They're happy in the sense, not just that I think righteousness leads to happiness, but they're happy because the Lord has intervened to comfort them in all their mourning and to make right what was oh so wrong. And we see that with Jesus in Revelation, right? He's currently working on a plan that will make all things new and will comfort all who mourn. So, the good news that Messiah brings about what He will do uh, for afflicted people, it sounds wonderful. The question is, at the end here, we need to ask as critical thinkers, does He have the power to do any of this? Well, to answer that question, think back to what you know of Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels. Does nature afflict us? Yes, nature afflicts us. Most recently, we have the hurricane down in Florida, right? Nature afflicts us. Well, what did Jesus do? On more than one occasion, when there was a storm at sea, Jesus commanded nature to stop. He just said, be quiet, and the wind and the waves stop. He has power over nature. Does disease afflict us? Well, yes, and Jesus healed lepers, and uh, He gave sight to the blind, and He healed the lame. Uh, Does death afflict us? Yes, and Jesus raised people from the dead. Jairus' daughter, uh, right? You think of it, Lazarus. He raised his friend Lazarus. And not only that, after voluntarily dying in our place on the cross, he rose again from the dead by his divine power. Jesus has uh, the power over death, which afflicts us. Do Satan and demons afflict us? Yes. And Jesus cast out demons and won the victory over Satan by resisting his temptations in the wilderness and then rising again from the dead after he died for sins. Jesus has the power to deliver on all these promises for the afflicted. And though I believe that the complete fulfillment of all this good news awaits us in the future, uh, in the new heaven and new earth, I also believe that we get to experience a taste of it in this life uh, with the good news of Christ in our own day. We, we get a taste of it in being forgiven uh, and, and being given freedom from the power of sin in our lives. I think we taste a measure of it in God's kindness and goodness to us in this life, even though we do have the disappointments of living in a fallen world. And from time to time, I get to see this good news for the afflicted in counseling. Uh, I get to see it when people overcome substance abuse. I get to see it when people overcome sexual addictions. I get to see it when uh, dead marriages are resurrected 
and reconciled. And I want to uh, close with an illustration today by reading you a testimony of someone who was afflicted and addicted and brokenhearted and how Jesus helped her. Her name is uh, Audrey. It's, it's, this is from a woman named Audrey. Uh, this is a woman that I knew of out in California. I didn't counsel her, but she was in uh, one of the churches that we had friends at. And you're going to hear, when you uh, hear her story, she was poor. She struggled with depression. She was brokenhearted by the death of a family member. Uh, she also struggled with addiction that held her captive. And this is her story. She, uh, she gave this testimony at church, uh, which is why, in a public setting, which is why I have a, a copy of it. Uh, and this is her testimony. Good morning, church family. I'm honored to be able to share my testimony with you and extremely thankful that the Lord has done such a mighty work in my life that I have a testimony worth sharing. I pray my story will be an inspiration to you all and that you find hope in my words. Most of all, I pray that our amazing God will be glorified. When the Lord calls us to Himself, He rescues us out of darkness, but I think my darkness was probably darker than most of you know. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder just before I was 17. I was put on medicine I was, to I was told I would need for the rest of my life. I've taken more pills than I care to count and spent way too many years bouncing between different hospitals, psychiatrists, and mental health programs. By the time I was 22, my life seemed to have improved. I was living on my own, going to school full-time and working. I even graduated from Antelope Valley Community College with honors, but the depression continued to pull me under like quicksand. In the summer of 2007, after repeatedly missing work due to anxiety and depression, I lost my job. A month later, my sister, who was pretty much my whole life, moved from just down the street to Idaho. My world was suddenly turned upside down and my depression deepened. The chemicals I had once only used for recreation now became a daily habit. Following my mother's death, these became my only source of happiness. Chemicals I had never even tried before became a regular part of the rotation. I was deeply depressed and spent most of every day, sometimes as much as 20 hours a day, in bed. I only got up for a few hours in the evening to spend time with my favorite chemical and eat whatever was easiest. I had no friends, I hardly left my apartment, I hadn't worked in four years, and I had no hope that I ever would again. The apartment that had once been my haven became my tomb. I believed my life was over, and I hoped it would just end so that I wouldn't have to take matters into my own hands. The hopelessness I felt was beyond anything I could describe. I thought I knew how dark my darkness was, but it wasn't until 2011 when I saw the glorious light of Christ that I really understood the extent of my darkness. It was like when you're reading in the evening as the sun goes down and you don't realize how dark it's gotten until someone tells you to turn a light on so you don't strain your eyes. And when the light comes on, you think, oh, wow, I guess it was darker than I thought. Well, that's how I felt when I finally saw the bright light of Jesus. So much of my life was in direct opposition to God's commands. I had spent 32 years living for myself, and I had no idea how to live for Christ. There were many days when I just couldn't see how I could possibly make the changes I needed to if I was going to follow Him. 
I saw my cross, and it looked way too heavy to bear. Thankfully, the Lord gives us what we need to do His will. We have God's Word to guide us, Christ's strength to sustain us, and the Holy Spirit to convict us. He also gave us the church. And uh, she doesn't say it in this story, uh, but even though she was in the depths of depression, when she was at the bottom, uh, she started going to a church on Sunday. She would drag herself out of bed and go to church. Um, And this is what she says, the Holy Spirit started convicting me of sin every time I used my favorite chemical. He put it in my heart to tell my discipler who urged me to tell my care group leaders, it's never easy to deny your flesh. It wants its own way every minute of every day, but it's much harder knowing that you grieve the Lord every day when you choose something else, uh, excuse me, over Him. I was petrified by the idea of living a double life, so I made up my mind to give up what my flesh craved and look to Jesus to fill the hole I'd been trying hard to fill with chemically induced happiness. It was very hard at first. And I didn't know how I could live without something that had been such an important part of my life for over a decade. I'm so very thankful to be able to tell you that last Saturday, I celebrated one year of not turning to chemicals for happiness. I would never have given up chemical recreation on my own accord if it wasn't for the hope that I have in Jesus. I would still be depressed, but because of the Lord's work in my life, I no longer rely on mind-altering drugs, and my daily life has completely changed. I'm so thankful for Audrey's testimony, and I think it can be yours. Uh, As you look to the one who speaks in Isaiah 61 uh, and choose to believe the promises He gives you. And in closing, I just want to give you uh, some practical helps. Uh, In the back, in the foyer, uh, we have a number of many books. Uh, This is from the Help series, and so the titles are Help, I'm Addicted, Help, I'm depressed, and so on and so forth. There are a number of ministries that publish really good many books, but the reason I chose this series is because at the back, they have suggestions for personal application projects that help you actually do something tangible to try and overcome or deal intelligently with the problem you're facing. And so, you don't just read a good book that sort of orients you to true north. I mean, books this short can't be the last word on depression and anxiety, right? I think you know that before you pick up the book. But they orient you to true north and kind of get you facing in the right direction, but then they give you practical steps you can take. They also, because they know their books are not the last word, they also give you other helps. And those other helps aren't just a biography, a bibliography of books that are longer. They also point you to ministries and websites where you can find further help and counsel. And so, that's why I, uh, I, I bought these. So, I have uh, uh, one copy of each up here, and there's some in the back, back. The first one is Help, I'm Addicted, and this is mostly for substance abuse. Uh, other kinds of addictions are talked about, but the author's mainly dealing with uh, drugs and alcohol. Uh, help, I'm Depressed. Uh, this is for people who are just flatlining spiritually. You feel like Psalm 13 captures your experience. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? I keep asking you to take this depression away, and it's not lifting. How long is this going to be around? Uh, It's for those kinds of people. Help, I'm depressed. Uh, Another one is help, I'm anxious. Uh, Some of us have active minds, and we go to bed at night thinking about all the what-ifs, 
And if we watched the news before we went to bed, that's a bad combination, and we need help, right? So this is for overcoming fear, worry, and anxiety. And then uh, the fourth one I, I bought was uh, help disability pressures our marriage. Now, the reason I, I, got, I got this one, because I deal with this a lot in, in counseling. Uh, people have marriages, and disability somehow impacts them. And when I say that, it could be a physical or mental disability with their spouse, but it may not be that. They, they both might be very healthy, but they have a child who has a disability, or maybe they're in the stage of life where they're taking care of an ailing parent who now has physical disabilities because of the way their health is declining. And that puts a lot of pressure on the marriage and on caregivers and frequently leads to problems. Um, and so uh, that's something that I, I see regularly in counseling. And so we have that in the back, help disability pressures our marriage. And then there's one other resource I want to make you aware of. Here's the thing. Good counseling involves good content that helps you see things that are hazy with clarity. It, it brings a, a, um, truth to bear on the subject. But you don't just need good books and good ideas. You also need people, right? You need people in your life. That's the way this was designed. This is why uh, God designed the body of Christ. And so, if you or a loved one is brokenhearted because of the death of a loved one, we have a grief share group that meets at 3 p.m. downstairs this afternoon, and we want to invite you to that as well. You do get a book there and a video, but you also get other people who are grieving. It's a, a group counseling context that is meant to help you grieve in a way that's healthy. And I would also add to these books, uh, these books are out there for you. If you're struggling with these things, I'm happy to talk with you. Our elders are happy to talk with you. Uh, we have, and we even have members in the church that the elders would feel very comfortable uh, counseling you as well and, and could refer you to. So, if you need help, we're here for you in the flesh as people, and we also have good resources for you in the back. Let's pray.